You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. By now, if you've been with us, we'll, you, you'll, you'll be familiar with this passage we're about to read. Kind of our third week uh, looking at the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, in, our, in our conclusion of uh, these nine fruits of the Spirit and also getting very close to the end of Galatians, we've been in here for... Um, Quite a, almost 20 weeks, a little longer than we had planned, but it's been hopefully a blessing. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to read 16 to 26. We're going to focus just on um, one verse, but let's go to God's word. Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is God's word. When the Holy Spirit comes into our life, he changes us from the inside out. And today we focus on the fruit of the Spirit and specifically the three features of the fruit of the Spirit that are these. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you recall, we could, we could place these nine features of the fruit of the Spirit into three different categories. We have those, those hidden Features of the fruit of the Spirit that kind of work on the the inward person of love, joy, and peace. Then there's those outward-focused features, the love-in-action features of patience, kindness, and goodness. And these final three could be categorized and described as that, that public posture of a person who is being led by the power and character of Christ. That, that outward facing still, but this public posture that the world, the watching world looks upon us, and these have great impact. And so together you can see how these, these nine uh, features of the fruit of the Spirit address the whole human experience, who we are in private, uh, who we are to, uh, relationally to others, and who we are in public, whether that's the, the marketplace, the workplace, whether that's even in our very home. And the fruit of the Spirit reveals a couple really important things about the nature of God's work in us that we should think about just right off the top. There's not a single domain in our life that is unimportant to God. There's not a single thing in our life that is hidden from God or unimportant to him. You might be thinking, I believe that God cares about my actions, and God says, I care about your heart intentions. The other side of that, we might say, I, don't, I, know God, I know my life is a matter of the heart. And God says, it's, it is a matter of the heart, but it's also a matter of how you live. 
It's also a matter of our witness. It's not just our private relationship with Jesus. It's not just our belief and trust and faith in Jesus. We are to be a witness, a faithful witness in the world. And there's not a single aspect, not a single domain, not a single sphere in our life, whether it's family, finances, work, career, hopes, dreams, ambitions, motivations that is unimportant to God because God is, he is Lord over all of it. And if you look deeply at the fruit of the spirit, which we've been doing, you will see there's not an area of our life that is untouched by God. And second, if the first feels a little overwhelming of like, that's a lot. That means my whole life is, is important to God. The second point is encouraging. God generously provides all that we need for all he calls us to. Right here in the fruit of the spirit, if it reveals that there's not a single domain in our life that is unimportant to God, it is also here that we see God's provision for every need that we have. The needs of our heart, the private, unnoticed needs and struggles and wrestlings that no one else knows, our public struggles, our sins, our needs for repentance and confession, our desire to grow in sanctification and be a little more like Jesus, and we say, where do we, get, where do we get what we need? Life is hard. Life is a wrestle. Life is a struggle. And it is here we see that God provides everything that we need for every domain in life. You've heard it said, you know, God helps those who help themselves. And that's not in the Bible, and it's not quite a biblical concept at all. But this is a biblical concept. Where God calls, he also provides. Where he instructs, where he commands, where he invites us into relationship with him, there will be a time when you and I will feel like, I can't do this. This is too hard for me. I don't have the ability and character and endurance to do this faithfully. And God says, I will provide. Wherever he calls us, he provides. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. He calls us into a loving, obedient relationship with himself, and he never leaves us to fend for ourselves. And so those are some kind of concluding thoughts as we look at the fruit of the Spirit kind of in its entirety. But we want to focus in now on, on these final three. You may, you may be in a struggle right now in your life where God's calling you to live as one who is faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. And you are wrestling. You are struggling and, and maybe you're hoping, maybe, maybe the pastor will just skip those final three. Now, I just, I just want to pull the congregation here real quick. I mean, these faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Let's just so show some courage and vulnerability here. Maybe one of these strikes you a little differently, and it's just like, yeah, I know, this is, that's an area that I am just struggling. Who, who would say faithfulness? What about gentleness? What about self-control? Okay, some of you raise your hand for all three, okay? <laughs> I was one of them, all right? Thank you. Thank you for doing that and being brave and being vulnerable. This is, it. This, this is our struggle. We've talked about how the fruit of the Spirit is, they're not just these heavenly concepts that are just stuck kind of in, in heaven for us to contemplate and look upon, but it, it kind of crashes into earth. It kind of compels, it has a, this, this trajectory of the fruit of the Spirit is one of confrontation, exposing our weaknesses, but also drawing us to God who cares for us and gives us all that we need. Like we've done before with the others, let's look at these features of the fruit of the Spirit, considering what we're called to and how God provides in his presence 
through the Holy Spirit all that we need. First is that we can be wholeheartedly committed because God keeps his promises. We can be wholeheartedly committed. This is the idea of of faithfulness. Uh, Think of some of these phrases, I'll believe it when I see it. Have you ever uttered that phrase? Let's see how it all plays out. What about that one? Or what about this simple phrase, promises, promises. You know, all of these have in common this this idea of doubt, distrust, skepticism, cynicism. These phrases are uttered when there's a loss of trust that has happened. Something is holding us back. We're not fully committed. We maybe have one foot in, one foot out. We're not ready to give everything. We're not ready to give our affections, our actions. We're not ready to put all of our eggs in that basket because there's something that we just don't trust about it. We're not fully convinced of something. The opposite of those phrases would be faithfulness. This idea of faithfulness is a sense, in a sense, means this wholehearted, whole life allegiance to Christ himself as our gracious Lord and Savior. My whole life with all of my thoughts and ambitions and dreams and fears and loves and actions and behaviors. Everything, Lord, I lay on the altar of your grace. My life is yours. Jesus called for faithfulness from his followers, and we are told what awaits his followers is this beautiful welcome at the end of our lives. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We look forward to that, right? We look forward to those words of welcome, affirmation, and, and um, kindness from, from our Lord. Faithfulness is different from those who start out with a lot of enthusiasm, but then quickly turn back. Faithfulness is, is different from those who are entangled in all kinds of other priorities, you know, kind of live a divided life, like some of their life is, is lived in faithfulness to God, but then they have their other separate life. Faithfulness is different from this, those who just want like an easy, comfortable life. I, I tried to see if I could soften this idea and this word a bit for, for our sake, but I really can't, because here is what it, here is what it means. Faithfulness is a wholehearted conviction of who God is and a lifelong perseverance in what he has called us to do. For for this reason, faithfulness can be a very challenging trait to possess. You know, some of these things come naturally, like some of these might feel like they come naturally. We look at the fruit of the Spirit, and you're like, you know, I'm I'm just a gentle person. I'm just a generally patient person. And then faithfulness, sometimes we see ourselves just all over the map. Why do I keep struggling? I, I do good for a little while and then I, I fall into despair and kind of get into a season of just faithlessness. Faithfulness is the character of someone that you know that you can rely on all the time. And that is exactly the truth about who God is. That is why faithfulness is the fruit of God's spirit. We've mentioned before that this is the fruit of the spirit, not the fruit of you Right, so we don't look primarily at these features of the fruit of the Holy Spirit and, and then base our acceptance before God on how we are doing on these. First and foremost, these fruits are meant to draw our attention to what God is like. He is the one who can be relied on all the time. 
He is trustworthy. He is faithful. It's a, and faithfulness then is the fruit of God's character being worked out in us. Faithfulness depends not on the strength of our moral record or the endurance of our character, but on the fact that God keeps his promises. Because God keeps his promises and is who he says he is and will do what he said he will do, I can trust in him. I don't need to have an attitude of, well, we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. I don't need to have an attitude of, well, well, we'll just, you know, promises, promises. God never turns back on his promises. He does what he says. He is faithful to the end. He is wholeheartedly committed to accomplishing his complete and perfect agenda in us and all of creation. Completely. That removes the skepticism, it removes the cynicism, it removes the, the, the mistrust, those feelings of, well, how do I know? If I asked you to name a characteristic of God's nature for me, and just think about, you know, what does the Bible talk about? Tell me, tell me one of the top three characteristics of God. I bet faithfulness would be in the top three. You might say, you know, love, forgiveness, faithfulness, right? And why is that? It's because the Bible celebrates this about God all over the place, Everywhere we see people talking about God, they're talking about his faithfulness. Can you think of anything the Bible says about God more than the fact that he is faithful? That he keeps his promises? Well, except for that one time. No, there's never any of that. We look at the story of God from start to finish. And these aren't just casual promises that God has made. These are, these are phenomenal promises profound, radical promises that we in our mind think, well, how can this happen? How could this possibly come true? And over and over and over again, generation after generation, they're celebrating the faithfulness of God. Well, he did it. He did exactly what he said he was gonna do. We didn't think he would or could, but he did it. Over and over and over again, God does what he says. He is faithful. The writers of scripture celebrate his faithfulness all over the place. Think of some of the Psalms. Psalm 117, 1 to 2. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Now, I put here just the first two verses in Psalm 117. You know why? That's actually the entire chapter. The entire Psalm is two verses. Someone sat down and said, let's write a song about God. Stanza one, God loves us and he keeps his promises. I think that's about right. I think that sums it up, print it. That's it. That's the song God's people were meant to gather together and to sing these psalms in gathered worship together. And this is the entire psalm. It could be summed up in these two verses. God loves us and he's not going to give up on us. God loves us and he keeps his promises. God loves us and he is faithful to us. If you and I were to come alongside the writers of scripture and ask them, okay, how do you know? They wouldn't say, I just feel it in my gut. I just have this feeling that, that he can be trusted. They would sit us down and they would tell stories. They would sit us down and they would tell stories. Well, this is what God, let me tell you a story of what God did for us. First promise was made to Adam and Eve. And it was a pretty radical one. Adam and Eve had sinned against God, rebelled against him, chose to, to pursue autonomy from God and independence and and the result was complete and utter uh, failure and brokenness and guilt and shame and sin in entering into the world. 
And God said, I'm going to fix what you broke. I am going to heal what you have ruined, and it will come at great suffering to myself. First promise he made. It was, it's called the, the first good news. The first time he speaks good news into our pain was at the very moment that we didn't trust God. And then they would sit down and they would talk about Abraham and Sarah. They would talk about Noah. They would talk about the promises to Isaac and Jacob. They would talk about the failures of God's people forever. And they would say, but person after person failed to obey God and to live as faithful, but God kept his promises and he was faithful to us. They would talk about primarily the story of God's people in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years, crying out to the Lord for help, and they will say, God rescued us from the bondage of slavery and oppression. He brought us into a a land of prosperity. He was with us and never left us. He guided us. He saved us. And he did this through um, his miraculous hands. He did it through his powerful, powerful being. He would tell a story, they would tell us stories of God opening up barren wombs of women all over many generations to accomplish his plans. And God saying, I'm going to give you a family and them saying, but I don't have children. And God says, nothing is impossible for me. I will be faithful. There'd be stories of sorrow and silence and long waiting generations of waiting for God to act, and then God would act, and they would say it's as if he acted at the right time exactly when we needed him. I imagine you have your own stories of God's kindness and faithfulness to you. You see, if someone asks, how do I, how do I know? You, you wouldn't say it's just a hunch. You would say, well, here's, here's how God has shown himself faithful to me. And we're told in the New Testament that God has proven himself faithful even more fully in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our Savior. How do we know that God keeps his promises? He did it through Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died the death we deserved to die. He lived the life that we needed to live but failed to live. He rose from the grave, proving that his sacrifice on the cross was acceptable to God, acceptable for the forgiveness of our sins. And, he said, and then he said, Jesus said, I have to go so that I will send you a helper to be with you. I am with you forever. He gives us the Holy Spirit and he works out his character and plan and agenda in our life through the power of his Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 1.9 says, God is faithful by whom you are called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. How do we know God is faithful? Because we don't deserve him and yet he still loves us. How do we know that God's faithful? Because he desires and pursues relationship with us. He gives us his mercy when we deserve his punishment. God is is trustworthy. Through God's perfect words and through our experiences, we have been given an endless catalog of the reality that God is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. But are we faithful? Are we trustworthy? Sadly, no. Not always. Faithfulness means that you know what you really believe, whom you really love, and what you're ultimately committed to. It is a continual retelling of this story, of our need and dependency on God, that he is holy, we have sinned, but Jesus saves us. Faithfulness, uh, says Eugene Peterson, is a long obedience in the same 
direction. See, it's not just this spark in the, uh, in the pan. It's not a flash in the pan. It's not like, oh, I am enthusiasm. Faithfulness isn't a matter of enthusiasm. It is a matter of obedience, long obedience in the same direction. Taking two steps back, one forward or something like that, or two forward, one back. Yeah, otherwise we'd be going backwards all the time. It, it is like we, we, we know our failure. We know our weakness. We know our faithlessness, but it's remembering who we are, who God is, what he has done for us. It is reminding us that he is a trustworthy God. You notice the fruit of the Spirit is not perfection, and yet God is perfect. He calls us to faithfulness, to faithfully confess of our sins when they are made known to us, to faithfully repent, to faithfully uh, pursue reconciliation, to faithfully believe whether it's 10 times a day, 100 times a day, whether it is, it is continually through the, through the course of our lifetime, to be faithful is to continually draw on the nature and character and forgiveness of Christ for all that we need. A wholehearted commitment and obedience to God throughout our lives is the result of a life filled with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit so that we, at the end of our life, can hear those welcome words of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. And you may feel the time, well, I haven't been faithful. I have failed. I have sinned. I feel guilty. But because God is faithful to us, he doesn't give up on his promises that all who turn to him, all who trust in him will be saved. That when we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that God has raised Jesus from the grave, we will be saved. He is faithful. Our second focus is gentleness. We're going to skip that for everybody in here. We're going to go right to self-control. How does that feel? No, we're going to get to this because I saw some hands raised. And I was actually a little surprised that the most were self-control. Most of your hands that were raised were self-control. It kind of makes me a little, a little nervous. Um, now, our second focus is gentleness. Don't run for the exits just yet. We can display a countercultural witness of humility and confidence because God cares for us. Gentleness when we think of this, invites us into a truly countercultural witness of this combination of humility and confidence. When you think of the most celebrated and admired public figures in our generation, is gentleness a top quality? Is it a top 10 trait? Likely not. What, what's going on here? Gen, gentleness may be one of the most neglected traits in our culture, and yet here it is, a character of God and a character of those who love him. A sign of the presence and power of God in your life is gentleness, and yet it is, in our culture, often despised, and neglected. You know, at the time of this writing, the ancient Greek and Roman world, things really weren't that much different. Gentleness is very close to humility, and both traits were not highly valued as virtues in the ancient world. In fact, gentleness as a character trait was despised in their culture. At the time that Paul is writing to this and saying the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, they would have cringed when they heard this word because culturally it was a despised 
element. It wasn't, it wasn't even a virtue at all. It was actually seen as a character defect. If you were gentle, if you were humble, if you deferred to others, if you were meek, it was despised in their culture. What was, what was prioritized was boasting in your superiority over others, your accomplishments, your accumulations in life, your knowledge, and your ability. Long time ago. We don't do that anymore, do we? Those were the things that celebrated. So gentleness was despised as a character flaw. Boasting in your superiority in the public square uh, by convincing people what you know and what you're capable of was an art form that was studied and practiced in the ancient world. People would craft, uh, they, would, they would hone this craft of theirs, this art form of being able to convince others that you were awesome, that you could speak eloquently, that you could perform effectively. And I would say it is very similar today as well. And there was and is, especially for men, this kind of super masculine ideal that dominates pop culture. Gentleness is the quickest way to be taken advantage of. Don't be gentle. Be superior, dominate. Be a winner. And to be a winner means to beat others. To never be, you know, right? Second place is the first loser, something like that. <laughs> if you're not first, you're last. You know, from our prophet, Ricky Bobby. Um, but the Bible presents a very different picture. One that was countercultural then and countercultural today. Gentleness may not be the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of God, especially God in the, in the Old Testament possibly, but there are two main metaphors used to describe God all over the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he is described as a gentle shepherd and a tender father. A gentle shepherd and a tender father. One who is leading his people protecting his people, guiding his people in kindness, in gentleness. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Sounds like a pretty, pretty unpleasant God to follow, doesn't it? What a gentle shepherd. He leads me. He guides me. He corrects me. If I'm going off path, he brings me back on path. When I'm thirsty, he leads me to water. When I'm tired, he, he, he makes a bed for me to lay down in. When I need protection, he's there strong. You see, is, is this, well, is God gentle or is he strong and mighty? You see, our culture has distorted this word. Gentleness is humility with confidence. We see all over that God is capable of defeating our enemies, of expressing his strength, of punishing uh, evildoers. And yet the same hand that protects us from our enemies is the one that, that comforts us in kindness. Psalm 103, verse 13, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. He knows what's too much for us, he knows what crushes us, and he is gentle with us. One of the most famous and best loved sayings of Jesus is from Matthew chapter 11, right? In Matthew 11, come to me all who are labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am 
gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you a kind of person that can be described as a gentle person who people come to when they are heavy laden and burdened to find rest? And when we think of that question, we, sometimes we don't, we're not so sure about who God is when we are in need. And all throughout scripture, not just faithfulness, but, but gentleness, his gentleness is celebrated for his people, even in the midst of their failures. Of course, we see the Lord's discipline in the Bible and we're even called to hold one another accountable and to rebuke and correct and admonish one another today. But if you look at all of the passages that deal with discipline and correction in scripture, it is always categorized by gentleness. Do these things, but do them in gentleness. Correct, but be gentle. Even our rebukes. It's not surprising that God's word turns gentleness and humility from being a despised quality in our culture into a prime evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. How do we know that God, that God is working in our hearts to shape us more like Jesus? We will become more gentle like him. So when someone offends, when someone wrongs, when someone is careless or forgetful, when someone just messes up, we are to react in a way that remembers the way that God has reacted towards us in our time of need. He doesn't dominate us with his truth. He doesn't dominate us with discipline. He doesn't dominate us and shame us. He gently corrects, admonishes, loves, and provides. He cares for us. He moves towards us when we are moving in the opposite direction away from him. He guides us like a gentle shepherd and a tender father. I find that gentleness comes a lot easier when you really know yourself. Now, now let me explain that a little bit. And When you know that you are weak, when you know that you struggle, when you know that you're a sinner in need of God's grace, and you know that you deserve God's punishment, but instead have been met with his boundless mercy, when someone else fails, you will be more quickly ready to give them gentleness rather than judgment. You'll say, I know what it's like to fail. I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to be alone. And when I was needy, God showed his gentle, tender presence in my life and loved me and was a dear friend and a shepherd and a father to me. And I because of that love that fills me and overflows from my heart, that's what I want to be for you. We become harsh and self-absorbed when we forget how flawed we are. We become harsh and self-absorbed when we forget how God has been gentle to us. Do you remember? Do you remember his gentleness? Do you remember his favor? Do you remember his kindness to you? The more you dwell on those things, the less self-absorbed you will be, the more outward focused you will be. If God can be gentle with us and you want others to be gentle with you when you mess up, then we can draw from the deep well of God's gentleness and be gentle with others. That's what this is about. That's what this fruit of the Spirit is about. As we draw on the gentleness of God, 
we can be gentle with others. How do you want someone to correct you when you're wrong? What's wrong with you? How many times are you going to get this wrong? More than three. <laughs> More, a lot. Yeah, you messed up. I know you messed up, and that caused me pain. I know what it's like to mess up. I struggle every single day. Do you want to get better? It doesn't define who you are. Your messes don't define who you are. God defines who we are, who we are, and he, he is gentle with us. He loves us like a father, like a shepherd. He guides us. Okay, now we're getting to all your hands that were raised. Let's look at self-control. And we'll tie it all up together. Here's what I think about as this passage and the rest of Scripture talk about self-control. We can be content in the gospel as a solution to our temptation in the world. This, this self-control does flow from a contentment in, the, contentment in the gospel when we are faced with temptation in the world. In our first week, we asked the question, you know, we looked at love as the first fruit, the first feature of the fruit, and we kind of asked, you know, why do you think that, why do you think love is listed as the first of all of the features of the fruit of the Spirit? And it, because it's the preeminent character of God. God is love, and love drives all of the following fruit of the Spirit. Love, love drives God to do what he does. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and, and many more verses just like that. So God, he, he is love, and he's driven by love. Why might self-control be last? Well, we could say that as love drives and motivates all that we do, self-control sustains the presence of all these fruits in our life. If love drives these, the fruits of the Spirit in our life and motivates us, then self-control preserves them and governs them and keeps them. Because with the loss of self-control, then all of these fall apart. And the work of the flesh then becomes dominant in our life. All of the work of the flesh really and truly is like a failure of self-control. And probably Paul has in mind that unless we exercise self-control and live in grace-motivated ways throughout our life, we'll not likely bear the fruit of the Spirit. It's the only fruit of the Spirit, as you look through these, that God has no need for. Let's think about that. God has no need for self-control. Why? Because God is not tempted by sin. God has never had to say to himself, okay, calm down, calm down. They're doing it again, but you, you love them, you love them, you love them. God never says that. He never has to keep his emotions in check. So the Bible says that there is no darkness in God. He himself is light. Uh, there is no sin. He is not the father of sin or author of sin. God is pure and just and good. He is the definition of all of these things. He cannot be tempted by sin in the slightest way, and God has no need for self-control. So, what does that mean for us to be self-controlled? You know, there is a self-governing that God has. There is a self-governing. There is a governing. There is a self-like, uh, there is a pleasure that he has in his own existence. God is content in himself. He is, there's a way that God is self-sufficient. He is all that he needs. All, all things are his servants. He is a servant to no one. He does what he pleases. His actions are always wise, just, and good. But in telling us to be self-controlled, is God telling us to be self-sufficient? 
Now, I want you to think about this because it's important. When, God's, when the fruit of the Spirit is self-controlled, does that mean you got to figure this out? This is up to you. Your relationship with God, your perseverance, the endurance of your character, self-control, get it together. Be self-sufficient. That's what that is. That's what that sounds like. But God is, is not telling us to be self-sufficient like him. So what does the fruit of self-control look like in the life of the Christian who, who is not called to be self-sufficient, but actually dependent on God and yet also self-controlled? It's not a quality of self-sufficiency as to say, control yourself, depend on yourself, get your act together, but, a, but a, a, a quality of appetite control that flows from our contentment in the gospel. It is an exercise of the will to make choices based on the truth of God and contentment in the gospel, that he is all that we need, that his word is true, that sin is deceitful, that sin makes promises that can never deliver, that always tricks, and the whole purpose of sin is to rob and to steal and to destroy. But God has come to give us life and to give it abundantly. Part of the work of the Holy Spirit within us is the way he enables us to keep sinful desires and their temptations that still lurk within our heart under control. If we know anything from Galatians 5, Paul tells us that there is a battle that goes on within the life of every Christian, a struggle. If you are struggling, this is not some weird thing that only happens to just you. If you are struggling, we have evidence in Scripture that says, yes, this struggle happens within the life and heart and inward being of every Christian and will continue to, in some way to the day Jesus returns. And the Holy Spirit is given to us so that as those appetites emerge, as those temptations emerge, we can have the ability to resist them. Not on our own strength, but on the strength that God provides Self-control does, does involve effort of the will, but it's an effort inspired and empowered by the Spirit of God as his truth and grace bear fruit in our lives. We can grow. We can get better. We can resist temptation. The Bible says that we will never be tempted beyond what we can bear. God will provide a way out. He will provide strength. He will provide empowerment, conviction, he will provide those things. We're actually given permission by God to change our passions, to control our passions. Someone once told me recently, you can't critique people's feelings. And I thought, I'm sure you can. <laughs> I sure hope you can. You can't ever tell anybody they're wrong for what they feel. Those are feelings. You can't control your feelings. These are my passions. This is just, this is, this is who I am. God actually gives us permission and not just permission, but commands us that we can express effort that originates from his grace and his power to deny ourselves of the feelings we have. We can deny ourselves of the feelings that are so strong in our lives. Paul most likely has in mind here sexual temptation, when listing the work of the flesh, Paul starts with sexual temptation, ends with sexual temptation, puts sexual temptation in the middle. Why? Because this is one of those appetites that really is one of the strongest appetites in our hearts. 
there's something that sexual temptation does that pulls on our heart's desires that nothing else does. Paul knows it's strong. He knows that it's powerful. And you may wrestle with that. You may wrestle with other, other works of the flesh that are in this passage. You may wrestle with things like rage and gossip. You may wrestle with laziness. You may wrestle, really can be any, any appetite that is inconsistent with the word and character of God is a work of the flesh. God, there's an appetite, there's a passion within me that is desiring for me to deny you and to satisfy my feelings. And God says, I have given you the truth and the power to enable you to resist and deny, to control those temptations. The solution to resisting temptation is not found in the effort of our will, but in the gospel working out in our lives. It creates a, the gospel creates a new self-image, a new self-image and, and new motivations for how we live. I remember sharing with a friend a temptation that I was having, and here is the temptation. You, you were all vulnerable earlier, so I'll be vulnerable here. The temptation was to have my self-worth, my self-image defined by how people think of me. And it came out like this. I would think at times, when my name comes up in the mind of others, what do they think? What do they think about me? Do they like what they think? Do they not like what they think? What attitudes, what things come to mind when your name, when my name comes in their mind? And he looked at me and he said, it's none of your business. <laughs> so, yeah, this is where he says, it's none, of their, it's none of your business what they think of you. And I was like, that makes sense. I've heard that. And then he says this, the second thing he says, and it's also none of your business what you think of you. He says, the only business that matters is what God thinks of you. See, my assessment of myself and my self-worth and the assessment of others and my self-worth, you know, none of that really matters. But what matters is what, what God thinks of me. And this is what the gospel does. It, it, shapes, it reshapes our self-worth. It gives us a new identity. It, 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 it shows us like the things that we've been trusting in. It shows us where, what, why we were pursuing these passions in the first place because we want to feel like we are accepted and secure and that we matter because we want pleasure and not discomfort. And God would look at us and say, don't, don't you know that I care for you? Don't you know that who you are don't you know that, that you are my beloved, that, that my full affection has been poured out for you? Don't you know that I'm a God who keeps my promises and I'm committed to you? And yet we keep going to these other pleasures thinking that they will make us feel accepted, secure, and that we matter. That it'll give us the life that we desire to have. That in fulfilling and, and not denying those sinful desires, but in indulging in them, that we will have the life that we wanted. And it's never worked. It never delivers. Maybe for a moment we will feel relief. But then there's shame and then there's guilt. Practically speaking, the way the Holy Spirit bears fruit in our life is we have to use the gospel by preaching it to ourselves right in the midst of the situation where you're trying to act in newness of life. God, I'm tempted here and I don't want to fulfill this and I want to live with you. I want to walk with you in obedience. And it's in that moment, we don't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. 
We don't just express this like strong self-will, but it's at that moment we speak the gospel to ourselves that this temptation leads to death and faith in God leads to life, that he satisfies, that this temptation is, is strong and stirring in me because I think it'll make me feel comfortable and important, but it won't. But knowing what God thinks of me and how he fills me with his kindness and how he's trustworthy and how he's gentle with me, this is what will give me satisfaction. And it is doing that over and over and over again until it becomes easier. If, for example, you find yourself being defensive or harsh or impatient, you must use the gospel at every moment saying to yourself, whatever offenses I have committed doesn't define me. But because of Jesus Christ's approval of me, I am content, I am accepted, I am his beloved, I am secure. If you find yourself looking down on someone, feeling superior to somebody, you need to remind yourself of the gospel which says, I'm just as much of a sinner as this person I am just as undeserving of Christ's love for me and this pers- as this person, and yet he has rescued me by his love. I can move towards this person. If you find yourself in sexual temptation, you need to remind yourselves that, as Galatians tells us, we should anticipate being drawn to live out our appetites in a way that, desire- that dishonors God. We should expect, and it shouldn't be a surprise to us, that we will be tempted in this way, that we will be drawn by our passions and our sinful desires to live a life that dishonors God. And it will lead to personal suffering. But the gospel reminds us that God is faithful to supply us with not only his forgiveness, but his empowering grace that enables us to say no in that moment to our sin, and to say yes to God. And that is only possible because every time Jesus was tempted, as the Bible says, just as we have been, he always said yes to God because he trusted his Father. He was faithful to the very end. He loved us completely and thoroughly. And because he was faithful where we have been faithless, he has given us his Holy Spirit so that we can be faithful so that we can be self-controlled, so we can be gentle. Here's what Haley DeMarco says in a great book called The Fruitful Wife. Self-control is a natural outpouring of a life turned over to the Spirit of God. Do you see where the focus is here? The focus is not primarily on self-control. Just control yourself, control your emotions, control your passions, do the right thing. Because that is concerned only with behavior and it, has, it cannot be sustained over a long period of time. The focus here is on the spirit of God and relationship we have with him. And the natural symptom of that is self-control. As I'm focusing on the gospels, I'm focusing on the work of God in my heart. As I'm discerning my needs and my cares and my loves and my fears, and then I go to God to meet those things, it will manifest in self-control. So friends, this changes us. You know, we, we walk in the spirit not by saying, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. But by saying, Jesus has done it, Jesus has done it, Jesus has done it. The fruit of the Spirit is not for the spiritual elite. It's not just for the young. It is for all who are in Christ, and we can choose to walk with him out of love for him through the power he provides.